One day, Sam was hunting turkey. They were being extra quiet, but then he saw one. And so I hit the deck and I crawled in this gap straight over to that tree, which is a big tulip poplar. It's like a, a hallway through the spice bush here. And I called and they kept moving down the ridge and they finally gobbled a few more times, but uh, that, it never worked out that day. This week on Interstates, turkey hunting, fire ecology, and other ways of participating in the landscape. All that and more right after this. I was young and uh, I shot a deer while I was moving, um, something I, I don't do anymore. This is Sam Schof. He does ecological restoration across Indiana. And it wasn't a great shot. He also hunts. We saw where it went. And he thinks a lot about what it means to hunt. And we followed blood trails, we followed tracks. The thought of the suffering that you've caused, it just really weighs on you. And then you, I can't help but like exhaust myself, trying my hardest to recover that deer, to, you know, to finish and to, to like, to pay my respect to, you know, for creation, I, I've got to got to do my best to find it, and and we did, and we 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 actually ended up recovering that deer the next day, and so, so wait, that, over that night was was kind of pretty rough, you know. It's like so you like you went home, yeah. So it just got dark. We'd lost. We thought it went on to a different property, and you're not allowed to just go on to another property without. You're supposed to check with the landowner, so. That evening we did, and we went back the next morning, and we were able to recover that deer. And, yeah, through the night was, like, you know, pretty heavy it's, that you caused that suffering, that uh, going out there with good intentions. And I was young, and, you know, you're not thinking about things that could go wrong. And um, But l luckily we were able to recover that deer. you still feel some guilt there or sadness that it was suffered for longer than it necessary. And, um, but then you get to work. I mean, you take that deer in, um, the butchering process, I think is maybe somewhat therapeutic in a way. It's like, well, I'm, I'm doing it myself with my hands. I'm taking responsibility and I'm going, now this is becoming food. And that food is super precious to you. It's like gold in your freezer. You know, you, when you do it yourself and, and wrap that meat and keep it, it's like, and, you, and for some reason, even though it's, it is so precious, you want to share it with people. You want to, it's like, this is something I got myself and from the landscape and I would want to share this with you. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how that happens. This is Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Alex Chambers. Sam and I met up one evening at the beginning of June to walk through the woods by his house. He lives just outside of Bloomington at the end of a dead-end road. It's a beautiful woods and it's very glad to have it just across the driveway. Mm -hmm. So, and how long have you been in this spot? We moved here in 2017. Yeah, September of 17. Okay. So, yep, uh, been here for a little while, and then uh, I think we met Gary before we even bought the house. We were here looking at the house, and he was outside, and that's just Gary's personality. I mentioned that I hunt, and he was like, oh, you can hunt out here. and. It's awesome opportunity just to be right here next to the house, you know. And, um, I love doing the public land thing and going to see new places, but with a young family and 
just a job where I work a lot of hours, it's nice to be able to get home and walk across the driveway <laughs> or wake up early and not have to drive somewhere. So this ridge top was farmed at one point. Um, and what you see a lot in these southern Indiana forests, when they stopped farming, they got a canopy on the ground so that to stop any soil erosion. And so there's a, there's a pine planting farther down the ridge. So it's like you can tell that that open area was planted just to get a canopy quickly. Virginia pine, I think is what it is, or red pine is really common. And there's a, some a white pine planted down in the valley. And you see those common. They, they're not native to this part of Indiana, but that's a common thing on those old fields. But then, yeah, so it was kind of left fallow, I believe, and you can kind of see the difference in the age of the forest. It, it's not all even age, but it's to that point where there's a, a canopy on everything, and uh, you can see a little bit of the succession in that, like, tulip poplar will grow quickly in an opening, and so there's a big row of tulip poplars, and then there's that pine planting. And so from, from Gary, uh, I've learned that he had rough grouse out here when he moved in in the 80s, which is really interesting, something I've never seen in Indiana. And they're, they're not doing so good. They, they do need younger age class forest with probably, say, a 10-year-old opening in a forest that's got a lot of young saplings. That's what a, a rough grouse would need. And so this is a lot older than that now, and we don't have rough grouse very close to here because that's the kind of story of a lot of the forest close by. But... Um, now, uh, Gary just kind of likes the forest for the sake of being a forest. So I've done a little bit of forest stand improvement, like let a little bit of sunlight hit the ground, maybe hopefully grow a little more, couple more oak trees. Oaks need sunlight. And uh, also it helps me as a hunter, like have some shooting lanes and then deer like oak trees and the things that will grow more so and when that sunlight hits the ground. So, I mean, right here next to us is really shady. So that understory is pretty bare. A lot of beach in this mid-story, and then some big tall tulip poplars that, you know, would have been early successional pioneer species when it was like open, a tulip poplar would take over. And then there's scattered oaks, like this uh, black oak. It would definitely not grow now in this understory. It's just a kind of a too shady. And sometimes that can be like a shade desert, you know, it can really, really just take your biodiversity and just really drop it down as it gets real shady. So if without fire, um, which beech trees and maple trees and young tulip poplar with that really thin, smooth bark, they won't be able to withstand the heat of a of a fire. I think Native Americans use fire a lot more than, than some people may anticipate and, you know, really manipulate a landscape for them for their own uses, whether that's blackberries or the food that it creates for their the game species. So anyway, when we don't burn things now or let fires go, we get a lot of beech trees and it gets really shady. Okay, so as you were saying about the, the rough grouse and how they need like maybe like a 10 year aged forest, I was thinking about how that seemed really specific and like how would you end up with that? So pre-settlement, one, we're dealing with a really big intact landscape without these human created edges. So we've got natural fire that would start maybe by lightning but I think more of those fires were started by Native Americans. So fire as one thing for sure that created a mosaic across the landscape and they could let fires go a long way and just hit natural fire breaks. So they could burn hot here and not so hot over here and create this really mosaic-like landscape. And then we've had large herbivores. There was woodland bison that would come through and create, you know, manipulate the landscape and, and the plants they chose to eat. And then there was elk. I mean, 
what kind of impact did millions of passenger pigeons have on the landscape? Yeah. What did they eat? What did they choose? And like, how did that create the, the community of plants that grew in the forest? And then wind throw and, you know, tornadoes and things like that, that create openings that way. Here's a little spot I opened up. Uh, girdled a couple of the beech trees and sassafras and uh, left those standing. So they'll be, they'll be good habitat for woodpeckers and insects and things like that. And uh, tried to get some sunlight to the ground, but I didn't go too extreme on it. It's a pretty small area, but way more May apples in that spot. That, yeah, it's really uh, obvious. There's yeah. like a, this, this whole bunch of May apples just really dense in like a kind of circle. It's like all of a sudden the, the sunlight hit this spotlight on the ground, grew a bunch of May apples. Yeah. Definitely a big aspect of the landscape fire was uh, and how it shaped everything. Fire tolerant species and fire intolerant species and like this, uh, I'd call that a scarlet oak. Shorter ski tracks, a lot of epicormic branching, like it's holding on to dead limbs. But anyway, like that scarlet oak right there, it's got thick bark and it could sustain a fire it can survive through a fire so a fire running across a ridge top like this that's north south facing so the sun really dries out the top and the west side a fire that ran through here would be pretty hot it could be i mean if you if you had the right conditions and so species like oaks and thick bark species like hickories would survive that fire and then thin bark species like tulip poplar, maples, and other species like that, beech, would succumb to the fire and would be top killed, which they might re-sprout, but it would give the oaks and hickories a, a head start, which that would also create a lot more open landscape. But then on the east-facing slope over here, it'd be, it gets less direct sunlight throughout the day, and then east and north facing slopes don't get as much sunlight so it's 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 darker and it's wetter and so the fire might go over there and then lower in intensity and so then your beech and your maple might grow better over there and so then you've got a lot more separation and a lot of different plant communities if fire is a regular thing on the mm -hmm. landscape which you know that more open canopy but like it's got a mid-story, but it's not like chock full and super shady on the west and south-facing slopes where the fire would, would be more intense, would create a different habitat. Like a lot of our songbirds, like neotropical migrants, that these, these things are awesome, you know, and this is something that's not a game species that I'm super into and excited about. One, I need to get better at learning their calls. But, you know, these, these little birds fly all the way to South America and across the Gulf and then come back in the summertime. It's so crazy. crazy. But they need, uh, here's a sciencey term, a heterogeneity in forest structure and height. So a, a variety of heights in, in the understory and midstory and then the canopy. And so when you've got a really dense canopy, it's dark and shady and then maybe too full of, of these species that would normally be killed by fire and uh, so that they like these openings, like here we've got a trail with an opening. And so with canopy trees that are really tall, but then a, a, an opening with some mid-story trees, but then open ground. So like they want that different heights. And so as the forest kind of closes in and, and we, we, without fire, then, you know, you're losing some of that habitat for a species that, you know, they have a hard time already. They got to fly all the way to South America and then who's looking out for the habitat down there, you know? So we've got a responsibility to, to try to do what we can. So yeah, some cool aspen over there. Aspen's also a uh, early secessional species. Okay. When there's a lot of sunlight hitting the ground, they'll grow. And uh, it's our native big tooth aspen. It kind of looks like the Western stuff, the Western quaking aspen. 
but th those are really cool because they're you know all the same they're all connected in the roots like one big organism those are neat i love that i had forgotten about that that all aspen like the yeah. aspens are there's just like it's one plant yeah yeah it's and amazing. it's crazy when you go out west and it's like to see the mountainside it's like that could all be one. I'm sure there's maybe a separation in between, but the least big chunks of that are, are one organism. That's wild. Neat. And is that those kind of tall trees over there? Are those yeah. the aspens? Those, those uh, are bigger than I expected. Yeah, they get they get pretty big. Wow. Uh, there's a like a clone there, like a good little group together. And then I know that there's other clones uh, back along that uh, east facing slope. Okay, time to jump in so we can jump out for a minute. I've been talking with Sam Schof, who hunts and does ecological restoration. I'd say he's equally passionate about both. We're gonna keep walking after the break. Stick around. Interstates, Alex Chambers. This week, a walk in the woods with Sam Schof, who's a hunter and ecological restorationist. I had the impression he was young when he started hunting. Pretty young, yeah. Grew up in west central Indiana, pretty rural community. Uh, much flatter than here. <laughs> A lot of agriculture. Uh, my family, my grandma had 100 acres that was mostly uh, tillable, mostly corn and soybeans. And they, they kept about 20 acres of woods. And so... Dad grew up doing some small game hunting and stuff, but it, it was never like his main thing I, I, that he enjoys doing it. But um, he also enjoys a lot of hands-on craftsman type things. Uh, um, and so we started going, I guess it was just so common. I mean, my friends and their dads did it. I don't remember like a conversation of like, I mean, maybe he asked me, and I was like, of course, I want to go to the woods. That's the, we would go to the woods to play and, and build forts and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I, I remember sitting with dad before I could hunt with him. I remember early on, we'd just sit on the ground, scratch out a place and leave so you don't make a lot of noise and sit on the ground. And so then in order for me to hunt, I had to take hunter's ed. So I remember doing that and being real excited that it was my opportunity. And so, uh, and how old were you? I was, uh, 11 when I went and got a deer for the first time. And, um, yeah, it was a pretty powerful experience. We were on the ground. We hadn't seen anything that day. We had a deer call. It's like a buck grunt, but you could put it on a fawn call and two does came in and it was pretty crazy how close they came in and they walked in straight to us and I was able to to shoot one of them and thankfully it was a good shot and she was down quickly and yeah or at that time it was like wow that happened she's down right there and so doing that whole process and then after that it was excitement and as a kid I don't think you're reflecting on like some of the things you do as you get older but um it got me really excited to be in the woods and getting into hunting more and so a few years later we were doing it more often and so I would read deer and deer hunting magazine and field and stream on my own at, at school and at lunch <laughs> and deer and deer hunting magazine was really cool because it kind of shared oh another one jeez Thanks. But they, they have articles written by ecologists. I'm like, what's an ecologist? Whatever he does, that sounds pretty cool because he's talking about like more of the whole system, you know, and, and the forest types and, and different things and how to relate that back to hunting. And so I remember telling a friend that like when I'm done with sports and I grow up, I'm gonna hunt a lot more. <laughs> and uh, so then I started thinking, everybody always tells you like, dude, you can do whatever you want when you grow up. And so I was, started looking at degrees. And I'm like, wildlife biology, heck yeah. 
I want to be in the woods all the day. I didn't know about it at first. Like it took me a little bit to really get into it. And I guess it's going through your prerequisites and stuff. And, and then we had a summer practicum in the upper peninsula of Michigan after our sophomore year. It was a five week program. And we went up there with all the people that were in your class. And finally, I kind of got a group of friends and then we did so much cool stuff. One, we're learning our birds by call. We had already taken dendrology, so we knew our plants. And I really ended up getting into dendrology. It's like, I felt good about like being good at that. But being up in the UP with all your friends and then I actually met my wife up there. Um, so then as school went on, we started doing some more like, like hands-on learning um, in those last two years. And that's where ecological restoration and invasive species was really introduced to us. And we got to go do some hands-on work with that um, with on Purdue properties. And, um, and this is like, oh, this is where I fit. This is where I fit into this. And um, there was a prescribed fire class at Purdue where we had to do at least one prescribed fire, but you could jump in on others if you had the, the time. And I was going, I got like three fires in before the end of my senior year that's kind of where i i i was like i saw a path and uh, started looking into ecological restoration companies and jobs and um, found ecologic down here in bloomington and i was working at ecologic three days after i graduated and all but three months in the last eight years hmm. i've been at ecologic nice. got to see a lot of indiana's ecosystems work on a lot of public land and get a real sense of ownership for that. You know, it is all of ours. And then I get to be out there and work in it and experience it and help to restore it. So really get to feel a sense of ownership, even th that, and try to convince others that you, you should feel this sense of ownership. You know, it's, it is yours as much as it's mine. So seeing all these places, and then we've started doing prescribed fire, like I said, fire is a natural part of the landscape and the ecosystem and it's been absent for a long time so using it as a tool to to do restoration is really fun and um yeah started that from deer hunting with dad that was all they hunted for a while but then some folks at work invited sam's dad out west to hunt elk sam's in college at this point his dad comes back. And he's like, you got to go. So as soon as I was done with college, we went out. And public land in the West is vast. I mean, well, I didn't have any public land around me growing up. And so when we went to the West, and it was like, you look at the map, everything in green, you can go, you can hunt, you can explore, you can camp anywhere for 14 days. And that aspect of adventure was like, wow. It's like, turn it to 11. And so we did that once and we struggled and we, and the mountains are incredible and they'll torture you climbing up and down and getting used to that elevation and trying to chase elk. So elk bugle and you can bugle back at them and they can, you can communicate back and forth. And so you've got another diaphragm call instead of a turkey call it's an elk call and i got a bugle tube and we're bugling that elk and hopefully trying to get him to bugle back and so the second time we went we went to idaho and um we were struggling we were we were trying to figure it out we listen to podcasts and we read books and then you get out there and you try to do these things and uh it's just like is, is this working are, are we doing the right stuff and we're just not getting into elk um, you see sign, but not hearing bugles and stuff. And um, Oh, and we did bump a couple bulls, and we're like, ah, no. Uh, and we found where there was a lot of elk, and we're like, oh, we should try to go back to that spot. But it had been like three days, and we were doing like 10 or 12 miles a day. So much elevation change. And so we went into town to like wash our clothes, take a shower, and we're at the laundromat. And a guy in, in the laundromat who didn't look like a hunter, uh, just that he didn't have, I mean, we were just all wearing camo 
and and washing all of our camo clothes and he just came in in his street clothes and he's like oh you guys out here hunting where are you from and we're from indiana and uh we started talking with him and he's like oh, i bird hunt but I, I don't hunt big game but i live around here you know so he's like you should try out this spot and you should try out maybe this other spot and i was like wow thanks and i had a mapping app on my phone and I had my laptop with me so I'm taking his waypoints and I'm putting them down on the map and he walks out and um like well that's awesome you know that's a cool interaction like I love meeting people like that and like having these conversations and connecting on something and he came back in and he's like oh I got one more spot and that was really close to where we had been and we had seen elk sign and so we're like, we'll just go back down there. So that same day, we went back down. It was probably like a five mile, five to seven miles outside town. Back close to the spot where we were that we, we had seen a lot of elk sign. And elk sign's pretty obvious sometimes. I mean, they're really big animals, you know, a big version of a deer. So we're headed down that way and we're like, we don't know anything other than like he said, go down Wolf Tone Pass. And so there's a hiking trail and we just started going and we do a couple elk calls here and there. And it's like, I don't, are we, it's like three 30 in the afternoon. It's not even like a great time. We just kept going though. And a Creek was flowing in the Valley we were walking in, which in the West you pay attention to thermals as well. Like the cool air falls in the morning so the wind goes downhill and then the afternoon it heats up and the wind goes uphill so you really got to plan out your strategy on a species like elk where they can smell you really well on where you are when you're trying to hunt them and so this creek was really helping us because it's cool air and it's flowing in our face the whole time while we're walking into it and we get like three miles back and we're still like is this going to be worth it you know and look down at the ground and there's this muddy spot and there's an elk track in it. And it's like, well, that looks fresh. That's the best elk sign we've seen since we talked to that guy and came out here, you know, so let's go that way. <laughs> and we went that way and up this ridge a little ways. And we, we tried to be really smart and like, okay, once we got up out of the creek bottom, the wind was going uphill toward where we thought the elk were. So we're just like, we just sat down and we took a break. And then once it cooled off and the evening was coming and the wind was coming down, we got into position on this really muddy elk trail that had a lot of sign and dad was gonna step back and call for me. And I was standing on this elk trail and we really ended up being like on kind of in a line looking uphill. And we start elk calling, cow calling just, and out walks this bull and he looked big. They just, like, to really get eyes on a bull, elk, in that situation, it's like, oh, man, here he comes, and it's big. It's really not that big of an elk in the end uh, compared to other elk, but for us, Indiana flatland people, it was like, okay, it's, this is real, and that's, a, that's an elk, and uh, dad was supposed to be calling for me, <laughs> and that plan didn't work out that he went straight to the calling. He went straight to dad, stepped in an opening at 22 yards and dad made a great shot i can remember the sound of an arrow going through the elk like a baseball bat hitting a wet blanket and we watched him fall arrow through both lungs he only went 50 yards and it was just like after all this effort we made it happen and it was kind of surreal. And then the real work began <laughs> of getting this elk out, being three miles back. And all we had done at that point had watched YouTube videos. <laughs> and so luckily it was an evening and it was cooling off because it was getting into like 85, 90 degrees in the middle of the day. So September in uh, central Idaho. And but we had the time in the evening and, and we worked from eight o'clock when we had that bowl down and we made two trips, very heavy backpacks full of elk meat back to the truck. And we were driving out of there with it all processed and in the back of the truck, not processed completely, but quartered out in the back of the truck at 7 a.m.
So that adventure aspect and then the hard work part, I mean, it appeals to me. It's, I have heard it described by uh, the meteor podcast I mentioned earlier as type two fun, like type one's roller coasters. Like it's fun right now and you get off and you're like, oh, that was really cool. Uh, type two fun is like, you hate it during it sometimes. It, it's really tough. And then, but then you get home and you look back and like, I want to do that again. So it was, that was a great experience to have with my dad, who's always always been pretty close. You know, he's that really great father figure for me and a coach figure. And um, now we've got a, a good friendship as well. And it's so to experience that together and to be successful and then bring a lot of elk meat home. The elk meat is pretty nice. Sam likes having a freezer full of meat he hunted. But it's not just about bringing home the bacon, which I guess would mean he was hunting pigs, and that seems weird, plus curing the meat. So, okay, it's not just about bringing home the game. It's about how you play it. This is getting confusing. Let's take a break. I'll try to clear it up in the meantime. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers, and here's what I'm trying to say about Sam Schof. He likes being in the woods. That's a big part of what hunting is about for him. So, you know, that time he didn't shoot a bird, it wasn't all bad. Turkey feather. Turkey scat. Uh, so turkeys will dust. Um, it's like a parasite control thing. Like they, they dust and I have a little bare dirt in my yard and the turkeys dusted in my yard. <laughs> but then I go out here and I hunted out here this year and no luck on the turkeys out here. Really? But then they come home and it's like, they've been here at my, in my backyard <laughs> while I'm at work. <laughs> so yeah, the turkeys are always, not always, I, they've been in different spots, but uh, often they'll be out at the end of this long ridge, which is like uh, 200 feet tall, I think. It's a pretty tall ridge. I guess pretty standard for southern Indiana, but that's pretty tall for the rest of Indiana. Yeah. And so, yeah, they'll, they'll go off the edge a little bit. And it's like for a bird, a turkey doesn't like to fly that much. So they go and they fly into treetops that are like their eye level. And so they'll find them roosted at the end of this ridge often. And uh, it's nice that I live so close because I can get out and uh, hear them almost from my house. And like, I just like walk really fast down here and uh, Often they're down at the end here, but it wasn't the case this year. They were so quiet. I, maybe they were, but they weren't goblin. I couldn't hear them. Uh, but yeah, I've had some hunts that are like 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a little disappointing? Yeah, sometimes because it's like uh, I look forward to it for so long. And then it's like, oh man, I'm glad it happened, but uh, I wish I had more opportunity. So then I try to look for people to, to take out. <laughs> like my wife didn't grow up hunting, but she's embraced it somewhat wouldn't uh, say she likes the long slogs of sitting and waiting. But um, yeah, we've, we've been able to get out together a little bit and it's, it's fun to do together. Introduce it to someone, someone you love and get them out and doing something you love, so. Is she kind of the first person you've like really taught? Yeah, I guess so. And you know, she does it opportunistically here and there when we get the opportunity, she doesn't really gone out and done it on her own but um, I'd love to teach more people and, and have people get that experience of you know you're, you're really just becoming a participant in the landscape instead of just a passerby you start to look at things differently they say with deer hunting you you're thinking about the wind something that you're not normally thinking about on a hike uh, it's been kind of tough, just a even-aged forest for deer hunting can sometimes be like hard to pattern the deer and where they're going to go. But uh, yeah, I'm really thankful for the opportunity because it's interactive and, and yeah, you can hear them and move and react and, and there's calling aspect of calling back and forth, which is really fun. Wait, um, so the turkey's calling back and forth? Yeah, you're calling to the turkey oh. and then hopefully getting a response 
and maybe the response isn't vocal, it's just that they're moving toward you. I use a, a, a diaphragm call that is just a piece of latex. It's a piece of latex stretched over a, a, like a horseshoe shape of aluminum, and then it's got uh, some like tape on it so it doesn't hurt your mouth. And you can, if I just practice on the way to work and uh, get out here and try to, try to sound like a, a hen that a big goblin Tom wants to come check out. <laughs> <laughs> so that part's really fun. Here, let's get over this. Yeah. A lot of everything else that you hunt is in the fall and the winter. So got my degree in wildlife biology and then I work in ecological restoration, which is mostly invasive plant control, but other things involved in restoration. So like I, I, I know my plants and the springtime is such a fun time to be in the woods if you're just into plants. Spring ephemerals are beautiful and they're, they're so niche in the time that they grow. They take advantage of that sunlight before the, the trees leaf out. So just being in the spring woods after a long winter is a really cool thing. So that's, I love the springtime. And then turkeys are cool, crazy birds that the males heads change colors based on their mood. They gobble, uh, they sleep in trees, but they don't often fly unless they're really scared or flying down from a tree or up to a tree to go to sleep. So they're, they're just cool birds. And, um, and then the calling aspect for sure. Yeah. It's just that interactive, like deer hunting's fun and that's what I grew up doing. And that's what I really kind of found, like it's why I do what I do now. Why I got into natural resources is like that, those experiences in the woods when I was little. But uh, turkey hunting, you can move and interact with the bird. And so it's, it's pretty dynamic and fun in that way. I mean, it's, it's quite a bit tougher to hunt deer from the ground and, and try to move. You gotta be really stealthy. And so if you're trying to eat venison and fill your freezer, it's not always the highest odds to uh, try to move through the woods and deer hunt. So try to set up on a place that you see deer sign and, and you expect them to be, to move in through and sit and wait and keep the wind in your favor and make a good ethical shot at the opportunity. But uh, yeah, a lot of sitting and waiting, which is also, you know, you get to collect your thoughts and observe the woods around you and for maybe hours at a time. So I enjoy it as well. It's just a good change of pace from fall to spring. And then as I grew up, you you know, you, you meet other people. And honestly, it's like, for me, there had to be a, a realization like, oh, people, some people don't like hunting. And so then you really have to start thinking about why, why do I? And as an adult looking now and, and knowing about ecology and, and things like that, it's like, I feel it is, you're participating in, in the ecosystem and, and we are a part of it. And to separate it and always be something that you're looking out the window or you're just being, a passerby, you can't get restoration done that way. You have to participate and, and good habitat is created that way to which that's where all these species that I hunt live off of. So, so yeah. I feel like I can see how hunting would lead you to want to be able to preserve the landscape, the biodiversity, the, the native plants, all mm -hmm. that, because it's going to be good for the, you know, the species that you're hunting, mm -hmm. you know, but like, is there a way also that the actual hunting of the animals is also a participation in the ecological system in your mind? Yes, yes totally. Okay. Yeah. It, uh, it's a hard thing to explain, but uh, totally one, you're participating in that. This is what humans do have, have done for, eons or whatnot, millennia, uh, since humans have been around. And so it's a natural experience that 
you can connect back through time. And there was all kinds of different people. Not everybody did that, but many, many did. And, and that's how at least, you know, most of it started that way. And um, so, yeah, a connection to like a very deep human thing uh, as, as hunting and, and then like being connected to the landscape in that way. And not just connected, I guess, to like my job and like ecology in that way, but like, yeah, a really deep human experience. It's one of those things like, it's hard to explain the feelings about hunting. It's kind of like, uh, maybe this is not, not too far of a stretch, but like you can't explain to somebody how it feels to have a kid until they feel it, until they do it themselves. So you can try and it kind of sounds cliche and you just end up saying those things that everybody kind of says. Um, it's like once they feel it, then they know. And so like, yeah, hunting can be sad and you try to be as, as good at it and as clean and ethical as possible. But at the end of the day, then I turn it into food and then that it's sadness uh, of taking a life becomes like, oh, now I, I've, I've taken this from the landscape, but I'm going to utilize it. And it's going to, I mean, literally build my cells in my body. And so like, that's, that's a pretty deep connection that you have and you can't help, but I can't help, but feel like, oh man, what I learned about where they were that time. And that, like, I, I want to go do it again. I want to go experience that again and then feed myself and my family that way. And yeah, it's a complicated thing to, to put it into words, but it's a, uh, it's a deep experience. And then I've kind of wrapped it into my job and my life. It's all this one big thing now. So this turkey season was weird because they weren't gobbling as much as you would expect them to do during the breeding season. So I was walking down this ridge, which is the trail is right on the ridge top, uh, north-south running ridge. Normally I could hear them gobbling, even if that's off this property from way back where we started. And so I'd, I'd be able to develop a plan and move to that area. I got all the way out here and I was walking probably the pace that we were walking, trying to be a little sneaky and not step on sticks and snap things and calling along the way, no gobbles. It was really frustrating. And I got to about right there and I looked over that way and I saw what I thought. It's like, that could be a turkey fan. And then it turned and it's like, that's a turkey fan. And so I hit the deck and I crawled in this gap straight over to that tree, which is a big tulip poplar surrounded by, it's like a, a hallway through the spice bush here. And I got set up on that tree cause they were, they would have been right in front of me and they moved around that dead tree and over there. And I felt like they could see me, but now looking back, these spice bush weren't leafed out this much. I think I could have moved a little bit, but I felt like I was pinned down. So I got to watch them for a long time, which is really cool see them strut and like I said his heads changing colors from coming in and out of strut kind of this white to bluish bluish red and it'll be like brilliant red sometimes and so I, I watched that for a long time until they moved over that lip of that ridge and then I crawled out here and moved up there it's still zero gobbles and he's around hens so I guess he had all the ladies that he wanted uh, close by because that's often what that's what they're doing they gobble to attract the females to come to them okay. so uh, when we're turkey hunting we're kind of doing the opposite i'm sounding like a hen and i'm trying to get him to come to me but yeah he didn't gobble until i got over there and a crow flew over and this is a funny thing turkeys do loud noises during the breeding season it's like they're so amped up that they'll gobble at a loud noise. It's like, this is my time of year. <laughs> and so crow calls, blue jays, owls, thunder, car doors, car horns, yeah. <laughs> they'll gobble at that. And a crow flew over him, like, I don't know, 50 feet over this bird and called. It had to be like right over the top of him. And he finally gobbled one time, <laughs> though I knew he was there already. And I called 
and they kept moving down the ridge and uh they finally gobbled a few more times but uh that it never worked out that day though it was fun uh, you know chasing them seeing that interaction and ha or having that interaction and uh i guess seeing their interaction together too that was pretty fun uh so it didn't work out that hunt this year but it was it's a fun story and like walking yeah. through this woods i know these spots now i have these little places where things happened so it's fun and i mean i can see i see the corridor right there through the spice bush yeah. spice bush to the tree it's like right there and yeah. then but they were over there so they got <laughs> right outside the hallway <laughs> so you said you set up on the tree just like what does that mean i just sat down with my back against the tree have my knees up so i can have a place to rest my gun and then i'm all camouflaged because turkeys you don't have to worry about the wind because they, they they can't smell as well but their eyesight is really good. So uh -huh. face mask, all camouflage, and try not to move. And so that's why that diaphragm call really comes in handy because you could do some calling without moving your hands. Right. Yeah, there's other ways to call like friction calls, like uh, scratching on a piece of slate, you know, or a box call, which is two pieces of wood that are scratching together. It sound like a turkey, but you got to move your hands. So at those last moments when the turkey may be able to see you, the, the mouth call is, is really uh, yeah. handy. Have you had that work? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've had it work uh, like uh, before, last year actually, they were gobbling just over that ridge and I was probably, uh, I think we were, I was just up there a little ways and three birds gobbling on the roost and they flew down and I had called a little bit while they were still on the in the tree and sometimes i could even hear like a bird turn and gobble at me it's like oh yeah he heard me <laughs> and so they came like jogging down this trail and so i was able to be set up and get a shot as he was coming down the trail and i uh, able to get the one in the front and it was over really fast it was it's like satisfying but also a little disappointing that it was over so fast. But then, you know, you're just so grateful. It's like all this, this crazy thing, you know, that just turkeys live out here. So thankful for that. So much respect for a bird like that that's just literally scratching out a living. I mean, they scratch at the leaves to eat acorns and, and bugs and things like that. And then that they were all gone at one point and then we, Introduce, reintroduced them and brought them back, that that's going to be a great meal for my family and that I was able to make it happen. And then you have some of the most fulfilling experiences some days when you don't get a bird or a deer or anything else. It's like just the experience in the woods and what you take away from it, what you learned maybe about your quarry or yourself. I mean, if it was a difficult day and or what you learned about the woods. So it's just a little piece of, like a couple layered pieces of latex. Uh, yeah. And then there's a little aluminum frame that they stretch them over. Okay. And then that's just like tape that just to make it a little bit bigger and like fit your palate. So it's like a half circle and you actually like put it in your, like right in your mouth. So that yep. half circle, like you bite down on that half circle. Yep. It's I, like almost like a dental kind of thing. Yeah, it does. And then so you trap it against your tongue and the roof of your mouth and force that air um, over those reeds. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing the sounds that you can get out of it. Um, so. All right, yeah, so let's hear some. Just to turn. <laughs> Turkey yelp. And they'll come into that. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Super cool. So that's that's like one of the most fun parts about turkey hunting is yeah. doing that, <laughs> interacting with them. So.
been listening to Interstates from member-supported WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org slash interstates. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Aabon Binder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chilla, Michael Paskash, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Sam Schof. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from Ramon Monrasender and Airport People. All right, time for some found sound. Maybe you could tell that that was not a real barred owl. When I was standing next to Sam Schof, watching him do it, I was still a little unsure. All right, that's it for now. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 